Hi, my name is Gunnar Froh and I'm your host on the Wonder Mobility Podcast. All right, welcome back to the Wonder Mobility Podcast. Today, my guest is Sandra Phillips from MoveMe. Welcome, Sandra. Thank you. Yes, it's I'm a very glad, to be here. I'm very glad to um, see you. We don't sit in the same room right now in person. You are in Vancouver. I'm in Hamburg, but on a big screen. And first time that we talk directly, even though I've read your name many, many times, you're one of the people publishing a lot in our industry. Can you tell us a little bit your background, what you are currently uh, working on? Sure, I can. And yes, likewise, I feel like we keep crossing paths, but never get to see each other. And maybe partly because of the situation we're all in. But anyway, I'm I'm actually originally Swiss. Um, so maybe let me start with that and then move to Canada. God, I can't even remember about 13 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so I call myself a Swiss Canadian shared mobility nerd. Um, <laughs> I Or shared mobility architect, which is something people really can relate to. It's essentially the building of new shared mobility services, not necessarily the management and the operation of it. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in Switzerland in a very small town and I never owned a car. I still haven't owned a car personally uh, because you, if you guys are close to Switzerland, you know how everything is connected. I feel like Switzerland had a mass system, a mobility as a service system before it was a fancy word that everybody is using. And so when I moved to Canada, I landed here and I couldn't even get downtown without a car or a taxi. And, you know, being young and ambitious when I moved here, I was like, yeah, maybe we can fix that. Now I will say I was lucky enough to get a job with Car2Go, the free-floating car sharing, and I was the first employee in Canada. Mm -hmm. Initially, just to figure out, you know, was there even... Is it even feasible to do this in Vancouver? And during a 15, sorry, 10 months pilot with 15 cars, which you cannot, and you guys know this, you cannot run a free floating car share with 15 cars. It was a very, you know, dedicated pilot. It was decided that it was the right city. And I will tell you, it was the right choice because today, even though Cardigo has left, we still have another free floater here. And we have, I think, about 3,000 car share cars between the free floater and the station-based, both local organizations. And we have a third of our population that has a membership, which is about 300,000 plus people. So I think it was the right decision. But I also, this is a long preamble to getting back to what I really love doing. And that's, so one thing is building the supply. And once you have the supply, it's like, how do you connect it to public transit? And so that's what I've been fortunate of doing the last couple of years. So that's where my heart gets really excited. How do you now connect a very messy, disconnected, fragmented ecosystem? Yeah. You called yourself a shared mobility architect. Skipping the nerd. <laughs> you're also <laughs> long time in the game. You know a lot about the industry, but you're now an architect of these kind of systems. Your company is not an operator. Like many people that we would talk on the program, they are running sort of their own service to consumers. You are, how would you call it? Would you call your company a consulting company or a launch enabler, a city advisor? Um, what, what do you do for, for which kind of 
group in the industry. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why the architect kind of works for a lot of people. I mean, another way of thinking of us in, in transportation, there's a lot of transportation planning firms. And yes, you can call them <laughs> consultants at the end of the day, but they're planning how a service gets launched, what you, you know, If you have equity considerations or concerns in your city, how do you address that? If you have technology limitation or budget limitation, how do you address that? And that's what I think our core strength is. And the architect, the idea of the architect as a frame of mind works for most people because it's, you know, an architect looks at, okay, what's the environment? What's the regulatory environment? What's the environment where I want to build this building? What's the use of it? You know, is it residential? Is it a hotel? Is it commercial? It's all different, right? You have different needs. And then they decide, okay, what are the building materials? How long is it going to take? What's the budget? And then helps build it. But once it's built, a building manager takes over. And that's exactly the same work we do just with mobility services. And it is, I will say... Historically, our, a lot of our clients were on the private side. So, and it could, could have been anything from a startup who was just like, okay, we want to get up and running, but we don't want to make the same mistakes others have made. Can you mm -hmm. help us? To a lot of, we, we did a lot of work with large automotive. So BMW, Volvo, Toyota, Honda, to help them launch either their services or figure out what the right strategy was. In the most recent years, and this goes back to my comment around that's where my heart sings, this like integrative piece, that's really more on the public transit and the city side. Like in Europe, it's a lot cities. In, in North America, it's often public transit agency. So we now have, I would say we probably have about, for the first year this year, I think we actually have more public clients than private clients. Mm. Historically, it has been the reverse. <laughs> that's very interesting. What kind of questions do these public clients have? Do they look only at how do we best regulate this or do they want to get active with their own services? When it's public transit, they're really trying to position themselves as, as the group that will run mass. Um, so it's not, it's a really fine line. They don't necessarily think of themselves as an operator because in most cases, public, at least where I am, in most cases, public transit actually has third-party contractors that operate mm -hmm. the bus services, but mm -hmm. they orchestrate the whole system. Yeah. So that's where they want to be. And they just want to bring in all the alternatives to personal vehicle ownership into their mix. So their mandate, um, if I understand correctly, is to provide uh, shared mobility options, let's say, and then they would have third-party operators run, for example, bus services in the past. And now they see these new mobility options emerging and they are considering to bring those into their city as well, rather than That's just correct. kind of letting it grow by itself, how whatever pops up, they want to somehow make sure that's integrated or what's the desire? I, Why I do they get active? <laughs> That's a very, it's actually a very good point. They don't, I don't think they see themselves, maybe not yet, but right now they don't see themselves as the one that will grow the services. But mm -hmm. once they are there, they want to have them in their kind of portfolio or it's ultimately, if you, the way, at least in the, we're, we're heavily involved in a project in Vancouver where we have a car share, two, the two car shares, the bike share and public transit connected mm -hmm. now. And the way 
they see there is like, it's just a different form of share mobility with smaller vehicles. But ultimately, all of them are working to move people out of personally owned vehicle into mm-hmm. other modes. And that's something they can all agree on. Mm-hmm. They're like... They all have that mandate somewhere in their vi- mission statement. So they can all agree on that. And that's the baseline of the collaboration. And, and as I say, like the ultimate vision, at least on translink side, is like this orchestration, the bigger orchestration of, of the flow. And if you think about what happened during the pandemic, it would have been really smart if that system was already up and running because, you know, People weren't comfortable being in buses anymore, but they were quite happy going on a bike share bike. So you could have shifted them over there rather than having people buy cars again. Do you think that most bigger cities in the future, probably we have to say maybe in Europe, North America, will have their city-specific mass app? And who will design this? Will this be sort of a project that that's getting tendered out by The city or is that a pri- is that emerging from the private initiative? I don't think so. I think it's going to be, and, and maybe part, I will put it out that I might be biased and this goes back to my Swiss background. I really think the only body that can do this successfully in the long term and sustainably and also figure out the financial side of it is a public transit body. Now, I know that you just said city, and this is where I'm like, I have to mm. be mindful because in in the, in Europe, city and public transit is very close together. Mm-hmm. In North America, it's a little bit different. They may have a mandate or they may have a mayor's council that gives direction, but it's more, more like a board of directors that gives direction to a company. Mm-hmm. A public transit entity essentially is, is is not necessarily the same as the city itself. But to to answer your question, I I think that's the group that if you want mass to be successful in the long term, that's the group that has to take it on. And there is more interest in in doing that. And again, it may have been the pandemic because, you know, all of a sudden realizing that your current business model is not working anymore. They're more open to um, taking this on. Interesting. So you think the drop in ridership and usage of probably buses and trains or more classic public transport options has made these boards or public transport authorities consider yeah, playing in this mass world yeah. faster because yeah. then they would be relevant and kind of be able to still orchestrate something or what what are they hoping yeah. to get out of it? Yeah, and, and they will be able to to continue to provide service, but at a, you know, operating fixed bus routes is extremely expensive, especially if they're tied to keeping a certain level of service. So if you now all of a sudden have these more nimble options that you could shift to, you can, like for for instance, if you're in a dense core, it makes perfect sense that you have fixed routes and you can move a lot of people, although right now you're not moving a lot of people. But generally, that's where it makes most sense. The further out you go, and if you know North America, a lot of us is very spread out. It's is extremely expensive to run these services. So these more nimble shared mobility services are a lot cheaper for them to run. We talked to a Trafi um, founder here some uh, weeks ago, and they're, of course, yeah, one of the pioneers for kind of a mass mm-hmm. solution that they also managed to then license out to some cities already. But I was surprised when he said probably how many yeah, bigger cities in Europe already have a solution like this. 
in place, not just from them, but in general. And he said probably 12 to 15. So it's still a new thing. Most cities yeah. don't have something like this yet. What do you think the picture would look like in North America? How many big cities even have a mass app at the moment already? Even less. So we're behind. We're always behind Europe. I will, I probably can count them on one hand. Mm-hmm. And, and there, I will also say there, sometimes they're a step towards mass, but it's not yet the full mass that you know. For instance, Traffy has Yelby, right, in mm-hmm. Berlin. And that's mm-hmm. kind of the lighthouse project everybody looks to. Mm-hmm. And the project we have in Vancouver, or the project, the pilot project in Vancouver that it won an award and gave us funding to go to the next round is like a mini version of that. It's the first step towards a big one. So I think North America, if we have, and as I say, I think it's about less than five that have something like connected going on. It, it's often also like the first step. It's not yet the full traffic version. But having said that, there's a lot more movement in the space. There's a lot more tenders coming out, even just to do feasibility studies, right? This is the thing with public. They will do a feasibility study and then they will decide to tender out for technology. But that's happening where three years ago, none of that happened in North America. What's the main interest for a city from your perspective to push for a solution like this? Would it be to kind of influence the mix of transport options that are getting used and highlighting some and deprioritizing others or or just to simply know what's going on or be what's what's in it for them basically I think city? there's different there's different reasons for different cities so for instance I'm going to use Seattle which is just down south from me and I know fairly well so Seattle has a one of their big concerns is equity and distributing transportation, affordable transportation options across the entire city, mm-hmm. also to communities that normally are left out by, quite frankly, even the regular public transit. <laughs> so their focus is really on equity and solving that problem. I'm not saying they don't care about you know the data piece or they don't care about the environmental piece, but that's a lot of their projects are focused how, on that. How do they achieve that through a mass app? Because does it then come with certain you know, service requirements, like saying yes, if you're integrated exactly. here, then you need availability everywhere? Exactly. And even on the shared mobility side, on the even when it's not connected, they're one of the cities that are not yet fully connected. Mm-hmm. But even on the shared mobility side, it comes with stipulations. So micromobility, they approved, I feel, at the beginning of this year, they approved the next round of kick scooter projects. And they came with service territory requirements. So if you have X amount of scooters, you can just be downtown. But if you want to grow beyond a certain point, you do need to cover the um, certain parts of the city. And with car sharing, it was, we could launch, I was with BMW when they launched Reach Now. We could launch, I think with 750 cars in a smaller area. Once we wanted to grow beyond that, we had to cover all of the city. And there's certain pockets that are, a challenge from, you know, a, a lot of the fleet was electric and there's no electric infrastructure in communities in, in Seattle that have less income, for instance, you know. So it's like it's it, it becomes more of an operational challenge. But that's, I think, so that's one way you can, or one thing that some cities focus on. Then there is this like, I want to orchestrate the traffic flow. I don't like necessarily the traffic flow, but I want to orchestrate where people are 
in, and I also quite frankly want to understand. It's flabbergasting to me coming from the private sector and now working with the public, how little insight they actually have. They do surveys, and so you have like a momentary insight into what your customers care about and what they do, but I don't understand where people move around. They often don't even know how much their customer acquisition cost is. So to, to moving to a mass system, you have more Intel. Yeah. So there are cities that care about that. Like LA what is are, one that really cares about the data side. What um, other dimensions do you see cities wanting to influence or like set stipulations around other than service area? Maybe that they're doing already or that you kind of maybe pick up in the discussions that they want to do in the future. For example, maybe pricing or vehicle choices. I, yes, I just want to say tying, and this is again, well, if you look at micromobility, you want to have an influence on everything. Like if you read those tenders, it's literally down to the like, when you move which vehicle at what to which corner. But let's put that aside. I think one of the other big movements, again, Europe is much further ahead than we are, is around electrification. And tying the fact that you bring electric vehicles in to your license costs. So let's use car share because that's well-established in Vancouver. We still don't have micromobility. Well, I should say kick scooters. We don't have kick scooters yet. But if you want to, if you want more discounts on your parking costs or license costs, you have to bring electric vehicles. So that's another one that they tie into, yeah, license fees. I'm trying to think what else. Um, <laughs> safety and education and awareness, uh, which this is an interesting one for me because this is really happening on the micromobility side, on the kick scooter side specifically, more than any other shared mode. How does this work? Can you, give an ex can you give an example? What yeah. does it mean? So in Cal Calgary just launched their RFP for mm -hmm. and two providers for kick scooters will get a license for five years. Mm -hmm. And part of their requirements are around, so what are you doing to educate the general population around driving safely, parking the scooter safely, you know, the usual problem around pedestrian conflict with, with the kick scooters on the sidewalks. But they're mandating that they come up and they're like the responses are quite creative. Anything from, you know, in-app training to like in-person dedicated spots to teaming up with universities that will predict based on data where conflict zones are so that can be addressed. So there's a lot of that happening. I'm less familiar with what's going on in Europe there, but I can tell you like That has never been a requirement for bike share. It has never been a requirement for car share. It has never been a requirement for any ride hail license that I have seen. Are these a few kind of cities that stand out that are going like really almost crazy? Or is that more the norm mm -hmm. nowadays that um, yeah. micromobility, shared micromobility would be heavily regulated in terms of who can launch and what local yes. requirements are that would differ from city to city? Yeah. Oh, it's, I don't think that's an exception. I think the... In fact, I would say all of the tenders that I've read in the last three months, and I've read a lot of them, they all have, as I say, they're down to the minutia mm. um, of how to operate and what to do, when to do. Is there some element in those restrictions that would favor local operators or 
have you not necessarily seen that that you think it's this kind of what does it do what does this sort of level of regulation do to market dynamics mm. does it make it harder to be sort of a, a global player and really expand to all sorts of markets mm. does that favor more regional options or do you not see I that don't yet? necessarily think I think there's and, and I use Calgary as an example again because I literally spent hours reading that in the last months but Calgary did have a specific like you got extra points if you were a local provider because a lot of these stipulations are ex like if you're one you have one city that you're operating those are really ex expensive requirements to fulfill you know like The big players can throw a lot of money at, you know, mm -hmm. public education campaigns. The smaller player may have to do some grassroots initiatives. So they actually gave extra points for local players, purely based on the fact that you're local in Canada. Um, was, was, that, was this if you are headquartered in Canada or even if you're from Alberta or Calgary, then you get extra points? Just Canada. Just okay. headquartered in Canada. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Never heard yeah. about that. That's super yeah. interesting. This kind of bias. That's super crazy because it's so different from the yeah very early days of ride hailing when <laughs> we also were a ride hailing company and kind of like launching ride hailing in Germany before Uber came here and was certainly very wild west and everybody trying to launch as quickly as you can and you knew you couldn't comply to everything, but still it was more easy. And now um, now it's becoming heavily regulated. And I wonder if that's normal and to be expected because it's like systematically kind of inherent with this kind of the space of what it actually is because in the end of the day, maybe it is public transportation, what they are providing. And so there's always been this expectation that it it's there's a political mandate to design that and not just let it happen in whatever form it pops up. But I wonder, what do you think? Is that like an extreme sort of in-between where people went all crazy and now the cities go extreme the other way and then it'll normalize again? Or is that probably the long-term perspective that these local shared mobility options are being treated very, well, how do you say that? Basically, experience a lot of local regulation. Yeah. I, I do think, and going back to your point, that it was like the Wild West. I do think the pendulum has swung the other way where cities are just like, I don't want the Wild West in my city anymore. Mm. And I actually do think there has to be a little bit of like getting back to, to center because the one thing I do find it going through these RFPs and seeing what people have to comply with, a, a little bit the big picture and the holistic view gets lost in all of that. Like, mm -hmm. you know, if, if cities have transportation goals, right? Um, Right now, there's a lot of like green recovery, but also economic recovery of Main Street. And so the RFPs are written not to address kind of the bigger pictures and goals of a city. So if your bigger goal is like Vancouver, for instance, they want to have 50% of all kilometers driven by 2030 on electric vehicles, on any type of electric vehicle. Mm -hmm. Shared or privately owned, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But they're, for instance, not letting micro-mobility kick scooters, electric kick scooters in. And you, you have to tell me how we're able to move the needle to get to 50% of all kilometers driven electric if we don't shift people to those micro-mobility options, for instance. It's almost impossible to do that. So I think there's a little bit, 
And I sometimes also find, you know, cities have different departments that are responsible for different things. You know, one group is responsible for curb, another group is responsible for the data side, and another group is responsible for TDM, the transport demand management, and then you have another group for planning. And sometimes they don't all have the same objectives or they're measured against different sticks. And that's when you get these really weird RFPs. So I think there is a in my opinion, anyway, I think somebody needs to sit down and be like, okay, how does this RFP align with our bigger goals? And maybe we can, you know, eliminate some of it because we want to achieve, as I said, the 50% of kilometer driven in electric vehicles. Okay, let's not worry about getting as much money from license fees, for instance, if it is electric, or let's allow a shared kick scooter in because that will help us achieve that goal. So I think, yeah, somehow that bigger vision needs to get back into the RFP process. I don't know how to do that. It's a real challenge. You mentioned that very few cities in North America have real mass solutions yet. And you said it's probably good for them, for cities to kind of reconsider what they are long-term mobility vision is and then mm -hmm. yeah, drive tenders like more pragmatically in that direction. But what percentage of cities, maybe above 100,000 or like bigger cities, do you think have an explicit mobility vision? Is that really even common as well? Or do they need yes. to even start there like formulating those? No, the transportation vision, like most cities I know in Canada, and that's down to like really small cities like, I mean, I'm Kelowna is actually not that small. It's 100,000 people. But even Cranbrook has to a certain degree a transportation plan. Uh -huh. So most cities have some sort of, obviously a city of Vancouver that has a large team, a large staffing group and a bigger budget has a much more detailed transportation plan than Cranbrook's with 20,000 people. But they be, and that's somebody's job beside another, like five other planning jobs. But they do. So you basically so, say pretty much everybody has a transportation plan, vision. Yeah. Almost nobody has a mass solution yet. Probably many or most don't have a lot of data yet. And meanwhile, yeah, kind of restricting more and more these new options mm -hmm. to complicated tenders. And is that always yeah, driving towards the plan or maybe also a little bit reactionary? Yes, I, I think it's. It's very reactionary. I think that's the okay. right word. <laughs> <laughs> What do you think? We talked a lot about cities and you mentioned that you've also worked with automotive companies in the past. You listed quite a few. Your, one of your first jobs, if I understand correctly, was Car2Go when they first came to Canada. You also then worked with BMW and others. How do you see the role of these OEMs evolving in shared mobility? There was a time some years ago when this was really propagated as very strategic to now also be a mobility service company, you know, not just a manufacturing company. And more recently, at least for some players, they've taken a step back and reduced their investments. So do you see this falling sort of into two groups or is, is there just a temporary slowdown because maybe last year everybody had to step on the brakes with their investments? What's happening with OEMs in shared mm -hmm. mobility? It's a very good question. I always felt in most of the projects we were in, um, it's a bit of a, a life R&D effort. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, trying to understand 
ultimately trying to understand what would happen and how would people behave if we have this autonomous future and, and that gets connected. That will be connected somehow at some point. So I always felt like a lot of, especially on the free-floating side, which a lot of the automotive companies got into, was a bit of this like, I want to understand the data. I want to understand the behavior. I want to understand the impact that would have on my business. Having said that, I think they all like running a service business is very different than running manufacturing something, right? It's I think shared mobility is much closer to hospitality. I, I actually think so as well. I, I yeah. often bring the restaurant analogy and feel like, yeah. what the heck is he talking about? But really, it's like it's like running a restaurant. It's operations every day. Yeah. Or, or like running a hotel. Instead of yeah. having rooms, you have a bunch of vehicles moving around. So it complicates things a little bit. But yeah. um, ultimately, it's a lot closer to that than to a manufacturing business. And I think part of, maybe part of why they pulled back is because it's a, it's a very different challenge that they have never had to deal with historically. And it's interesting to see kind of in a Petri dish, but when it becomes mass scale, that's a, yeah, it's a very, it sometimes I also felt wasn't like internally the mentality, the, the majority of the people internally in automotive companies still work on the manufacturing and sales side and not on the service side. Right. So it was, it was always this small group that then had to explain why they're dealing with operations and operation overhead and costs on a daily basis. And that is just part of doing that type of business. I think the other reason maybe is because automotive is a very cyclical business, right? And uh, in 2008, their sales, like every year I felt like the sales went further down. And so they were under the pressure that the public transits are under right now, like, like, how do we position ourselves for success in the future? And then last year specifically, I think they did not have to complain about sales dropping. I think the automotive <laughs> did better than a lot of other industry. Well, so. Yeah, what I also heard often, and for example, the Share Now CEO was also here some weeks ago when they talk about profitability, really, um, and the mindset in, in, in car companies, they are typically profitable. It's almost... Like it's very yes. rare. It's like super not acceptable <laughs> to not be profitable in a year. And so there's yes. the expectation for their mobility divisions to be also growing profitably. And then that's very different from what some other new entrants um, expect in the market. Not to say which is the better model, but just kind of uh, maybe not 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 ready to go through a longer investment phase. And that, of course, kind of leads over to the question of operators being profitable in general. Do you have a view on that, do you see some already thriving and doing very well, running shared mobility profitably, and then others not yet? Or or do you think that's going to be really a challenge and an open question in the long term? It, so flat out, I will tell you, even the ones that I know that are profitable, the margins are very low. Like you're somewhere between 4 and 10%. Like even if you're doing great and you've been around for 20 or more years. It's a difficult business to be in, providing personal transportation. And it's is, an expensive oh, sorry. business. Sorry. Which is, which is why I think, again, like the mindset of public transport agencies 
they already know that it's really difficult <laughs> and they get subsidies. And if, yeah. if, if you're providing, you know, ultimately mobility and access to opportunity for people, then maybe that makes most sense. Without owning their own personal vehicle, then maybe it makes more sense to think of even the smaller shared mobility forms as part of that system. Can you think of a company that's doing exceptionally well in shared mobility that's maybe even more profitable than the 4% to 10%? I mean, they're mostly not all on, private, so it's hard to tell. Yeah, not on the ones, as I say, the ones that we know, that's kind of the range they're in. Yeah. Why, why do you think um, that is? What's, um, what's making it difficult for operators to... Yeah, become more profitable over time. What do you think are like main challenges? So you make this fascinating comparison to um, hospitality, basically not realizing for some people how it's the day-to-day -day operations, keeping up the service levels. But what makes the biggest differences when you are consulting, for example, about launching into a new market? How do how, What drives, what's the mm -hmm. main driver, whether they reach profitability quickly or not? I think one of the... One of the real big ticket items for a lot of people is the fees that get charged from the city. Okay. I, again, I will say, and I, I have heard this now numerous times that in Europe, it's often there isn't. In North America, in most cases, there is a fee attached. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I should also, I should preface this, that this is particularly the case on the car sharing side. So the parking, the cost associated with parking the vehicles is normally one of the top three items, line items. And so if you can figure out a way of reducing that significantly, then that makes a real big difference. I think the other one that is the real challenge, and that's actually maybe more so on the micromobility side, is insurance. Mm -hmm. I think insurance companies haven't quite, I don't know, they haven't quite figured out how to price this because they are, They haven't quite figured out the risk associated with it. It's new, so there isn't that much data. They're like, obviously, it's an insurance or your risk adverse group. So that's another challenge for a lot of, as I say, on the micromobility, you know, where like the vehicles are much cheaper. Generally, you don't have parking costs. Technology is a lot cheaper than on the car sharing side. But then you have an insurance package that you're just like, okay, that's more than my entire staff and my entire fleet costs in a year. So that makes no sense. When you look at studies from McKinsey or Goldman Sachs about vehicle sharing and shared mobility, they're predicting enormous growth for the coming years still. So ride sharing or ride hailing already had a lot of growth, vehicle sharing Not so much. It's projected to be even more driven also by micromobility. Some number I read was basically saying last year, maybe 8 billion revenues globally, but 2030 could be 480 billion, like 60% per year. Just ton of growth. Where do you think most of this growth would come from in vehicle sharing? Is that just adding more cities, even smaller cities or new user groups or more, um, I don't know, more expensive Vehicles, maybe going into different vehicle types. Where's most of the growth coming from in the industry? I'd probably be a little bit more conservative in the growth, but okay. Like <laughs> I, I also predict there's going to be growth. And I think there's the, 
you just mentioned this, and I think that's probably the key, is like different consumer segments and different uh-huh. business models in the sense of like one of the ones that is really taking off, I know on your side, but also on our side, is the whole corporate mobility programs and how, mm-hmm. you know, instead of providing fleets or vehicles to employees, what can you provide a mobility package? Mm-hmm. And I think that's where there's a lot of movement right now. There's a lot of growth. There's mobility budgets, you know, being implemented. And I know Milan has one, Paris has one that people can tap in. And it's you can only tap into it if it's not a personal vehicle, right? So I think that's one group. The other thing I will say, and this is something that we know in shared mobility, or I know anyway, for, for years now, is that we have tapped into kind of well-educated, above-average income between, let's say, 25 to 40-ish people, often a little bit skewed towards male, but mm-hmm. with bike share it's, and public transit, it's more female. So anyway, so somewhere in there, so I'm less concerned about the gender, I'm more concerned about the... Um, but they're well-educated and have above-average income. We haven't figured out how to tap into the other age brackets or the other economic backgrounds, or even, quite frankly, people that make the same amount of money or in the same age groups, but just have a different education, don't have a bachelor degree, you know, because we communicate. And I feel this is something we do. The people design these services, look at us. We all are kind of the same background. So, so in that sense, it's, it's, it's not well. It, it sounds like it's not well marketed yet. Yeah, it's it's not well marketed, or it's like we speak to the people that we know and that that understand us best, right? It's I'm in a seniors working group at the moment on transportation, and <laughs> I can tell you, I sit in there, and every time I come out, I'm like, I did not know that that's their biggest problem. And of course, if I don't understand what their biggest problem is, my message will just not even resonate with them. So I think that's one of our biggest issues is we haven't tapped into other groups because we either don't understand what their problems are, so we don't design the products and services around it, but we also don't speak their language. And sometimes I also think we don't even use the channels that they care about to communicate about the product. So, so, in, so in that sense, it sounds like, from your view, shared mobility is the mainly on early adopters and it's not yet actually consumed as maybe even the more accessible alternative than car ownership for some reason, because how it's positioned or because of how, I don't know, maybe tech savviness that is required to access it in the beginning or like the sign up flow, things like that. Somehow it's not designed with older, an older population or a less educated population in mind. And that, mm-hmm. and do you think that cities would more drive services in that direction? So if they force mm-hmm. everybody into a mass solution and say, you please have to go to all areas of the city, will they then also somehow influence, you know, your sign-up funnel needs to not have credit cards and needs to be other options, yes. for example? Yes. Yes, they do. I can tell you that flat out. <laughs> they okay. do. They may have, you know, they may not have they may recognize that that's maybe not the first step, right? When you introduce new technology, you want to make sure that that runs stable. And then you can introduce those like, okay, now let's figure out how we make it 
work for people without credit cards. So they may acknowledge that this doesn't need to happen like in the first year, but mm-hmm. they will push for, you know, unbanked or people without credit cards. They will push for more languages, which is a big topic right now in my project. It's like, which languages apart from English do we need to have? So in, you know, the mass solution so that people that speak, in Vancouver is full of immigrants, right? And people yeah. that come from all over the place. So it appeals to them. They will push figuring out, okay, what can we do? I know that that one is a really tricky one, but what can you do for people with restricted mobility issues? Mm-hmm. There will, I, I will also say mass is actually interesting. And I know there is a project by Skeko, which is kind of a competitor to Traffy, but they've done some work around people with mental health issues people that do not want to be in crowds that get triggered around shifting them to other modes where they're alone. So they're still kind of, instead of buying their own vehicles, they're now still on their, in their own capsule, not in the big bus where they get triggered, but still in the shared ecosystem. And I think those are things <laughs> that public agencies and cities will push more because they're mandated to do that. That's super interesting. I see a lot of, you know, pitch decks in mobility also that they're asking maybe, you know, for advice or introduction and stuff. And I saw in the last weeks, several car sharing, like premium car sharing pitches, basically. Let's go all Tesla car sharing, all da da da, we have a Porsche car sharing, da da. And I did not see any that would say, let's make like a, you know, discounter car sharing. You would say like a Walmart, Aldi kind of uh, car sharing that is super accessible for, for anybody. It's very simple. That's actually dry, competing on maybe on price. And that's definitely of the bias of who is launching um, these businesses of what's the cooler thing to work on. I want to run a fleet of Teslas and enjoy them myself rather than thinking of, you know, the, the, the cheapest cars that I can get somewhere. I think that's a super interesting. And that's definitely going to come. But there is a bias in who builds the things of what will come first. Yeah. So I will, I will add something here because I find that very fast. I find that topic super fascinating so we run the empower women in shared mobility award and so this year the group that won is called charger health and they really train it's it's really more of a workforce program to maintain charging infrastructure you know one thing is putting electric charging infrastructure in place mm-hmm. in cities the other thing in a lot of cases and this is again something i learned is that in a lot of u.s cities There is lots of them, but they're broken (laughs) because the service contracts go to the infrastructure company, but the infrastructure company doesn't have people in those markets. So that's what they're targeting. They're just like, they're building up a workforce, a trained, very well-trained workforce that fixes that. Now, this is a long preamble to getting to the point because what they found is, so they're tapping into labor programs in communities that lost jobs during the pandemics or lost manufacturing jobs or lost oil, were in the oil and gas industry and lost jobs. And they're really, so they're generally lower income, less educated. The really interesting thing that she was telling me when we had our check-in a couple of weeks ago is that that demographic doesn't even know the benefits of electric cars. All they know is like, it's really too expensive. My family, my neighbors, we can't afford that. 
but the actual benefits of, you know, there's noise reduction, there's less air pollution, and that your communities are actually often negatively impact um, with air pollution. And so if we're, what, what they're essentially building is they're not, not only building a workforce that can fix the charging infrastructure, they're also building ambassadors in those very specific communities that we never tap into. And so, yeah, we that's one of the reasons we're excited working with them because they're doing exactly what you said. They're, they're a group and they come from that background, which is, mm-hmm. I think, why they understand how to speak to them, how to get them engaged and how to make them part of this kind of shared mobility revolution. That's super interesting. Everybody has mobility needs and I think more and more will consume them digitally, but the products that are being used are going to be very different. In some cases, a lifestyle product and in others, kind of an essential that needs to be maybe accessed easily or where the cost of of running them is the key driving factor and not the design. All right, we touched on a lot of different areas now and I am a little bit mindful of your time. You said that we have the one slot in the day that was still free. Thanks a lot for making that available for us. It was super nice to meet you almost in person in this way. I hope there'll be a chance to travel again very soon. We have our summit in the fall that we're planning to definitely host again in person. And we're using this podcast to basically speak to people that we would normally have liked to see on stage at a summit. So maybe if it's happening this fall and maybe if travel is lifted and so on, that would be an opportunity to also connect in person. It would be really awesome to see you there. That would be that would be wonderful. I know that there's also, you know, University of Sun Colin is really trying to do the next block in person. So I tentatively, in my mind anyway, I'm going to Great. Europe in the fall, <laughs> but we'll, we'll see if it actually is happening. Yeah, Sounds good. And that's the program you are teaching in, right? In University of Sun Colin mm-hmm. Executive Education. Yeah. Yeah. Ever specifically yeah. for leaders of mobility. Yeah. yeah. Thanks a lot for coming on today. And Have a great day. See you soon. Thank you. You guys have a good evening and thanks for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye.